Good morning. Good to be with you and sing God's praises, get into his word together. Um, as you came in, uh, hopefully you got an outline. We, uh, we love encouraging note-taking. Uh, it's a good way to kind of get, get the truth to uh, get lodged in our hearts and our minds. We are jumping back into Ephesians. Jeff gave, gave us a great kind of refresher helping us see where we were uh, last year and then setting us up as we go into the latter half of the book um, this year. Um, I want to start with a little thought experiment just to get our heads in the right space as we come to just these first six verses. I wonder, uh, what if you were homeless and somebody just randomly came up and gave you 10 million bucks. I wonder if you or I would, would just continue to live on the streets. Or here's another one. What if you were in an ICU with complications from a terminal disease and somehow in a moment you were miraculously healed? How many of you would keep your room at the hospital? One more. What if you were on death row and the day is approaching for your execution and somehow you are exonerated? How many of you would just continue living on at the prison? Now, how many of us have been, as Paul said, blessed with every spiritual blessing? I, I wrote them down. Chosen, holy, blameless, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. How many of us have been blessed with every spiritual blessing and yet we remain on in places of doubt, of discouragement, of disobedience, of discontentment, of divisiveness. See, to the, to the Apostle Paul, that kind of life is really hard to reconcile. To, to settle for so little when there has been so much granted to us in Christ. Now, I do not say that to discourage you, to demean you in any way, because guess what? I've been asking these questions all week. I'm right there with you. But I think Paul is challenging us, especially as we enter into the second half of this book, to look at as objectively as we can at the gap between how we're living and the life we've been given in Christ. 
whatever that gap might be. In London, if you go down into the subway system there, uh, you'll see on all of the ground right before there, you'll see this phrase, mind the gap. And usually it's especially important when the, the area where you're getting onto the subway is curved because obviously railway cards are not curved, right? <laughs> so if it's on a curve, there's a much bigger gap. And so you'll hear over the intercom, uh, train is approaching, mind the gap. That means watch where you're walking. I, I think Paul wants us, as we get back into Ephesians, particularly on this second half, mind the gap. The gap between how you're living, reality, and the life that you have been given in Christ, whatever that gap might be. We've been ushered into a new, stunning community of faith that's described in chapters 1 through 3. And as members of that community, we're given a code of conduct in chapters 4 through 6. And let me just say this. I'm as cautious about legalism as you'll ever find. I really am. But listen, if you're following Jesus around, it's not just a free-for-all. And he's not asking you how you want to live life. He's telling you our New Testament is full of commands. Now, we're under God's grace for sure. Thankfully, I'd be in big trouble. But those commands are meant to be obeyed and in 1 John, it talks about, listen, if you love God, guess how we know that? You obey his commands. It's, legalism means I obey his commands to get something. Living in God's grace means I obey God's commands because he loves me so. So hear that before we get into three chapters of, evalu of evaluation and uh, self-examination and application. Here's how Paul begins in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. As Jeff mentioned last week, that word, therefore, that's the hinge that tells us that whatever is coming ahead points back to what was behind. That's the linkage between the two halves of this book. So it's in light of what I've told you in these first three chapters, that is going to dictate what you do next. So when I give you commands and direction and guidance... You're doing that in light of this truth over here. It's not just kind of hanging out there in the middle of nowhere. So there's a shift 
And there's a relationship between these two halves. Professor Tom Constable describes the shift this way. It's moving from mind-stretching theology. That's a great description. Chapters 1 through 3. It's moving from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications for everyday living. That's where we want to get. And we're going to start our path that way. You could put over this whole section, but particularly this first verse, walk worthy. Walk worthy. Or you could say it this way, in light of the first three chapters, live like you're blessed. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, right? That's what he said in chapter one. Live like it. And he's saying it with great passion and energy. He said, I urge you, I implore you, I exhort you. Walk in a manner worthy of this amazing calling that you've been given. Walk. What does that mean? That is the way in which one lives. That is your conduct. And it's not just in your best moments. It's in your worst. And it's in all the mundane little stuff. If you're like me, I can usually really show up for the big things. But it's just all that stuff in between. I, that's where I feel very challenged by Christ. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, just all that simple little stuff, do all to the glory of God. That's a challenge. This idea of walking shows up in chapter 4, 1, verse 17, 5, 2, 5, 8, 5, 15. This is an important image that he wants us to get. Now, we all have, physically speaking, we all have what's called our gait. You've heard that before. It's, it's kind of the combination of your stride, your posture, how your foot strikes the ground, your arm swing. I, I thought of just funny. How many saw Tim Conway, the, old, the oldest man? That's an interesting gait. But you can tell a lot about a person, even their personality, by how they walk. So Paul is using that illustration to say, you know what? We can tell a lot about you, your heart, what's going on on the inside by how you walk, by how you live life day in and day out, even in the mundane. Paul wants us to walk in a worthy manner. Now, that word worthy, it, it points us back to an ancient imagery of a scale, right? You think about just a regular scale. You're just weighing things out, making sure they are equivalent to one another. So, again, using the setup of the whole book of Ephesians, we have this blessed life that we've been given, and that's on one side of the scale, and he says, walk in a, in a worthy manner 
a manner worthy of the calling, of the blessing, of the life that you've been given. That's on the other side of the scale. And there is such a thing as living in a way that it reflects the blessedness that you have. There is such a thing. Nobody does it perfectly, but that's what we're striving after. Pastor Roger Pascal says this, a walk that conforms to our new position in Christ and not our old position in the world. And yet, isn't it tempting to just kind of stay where we were? Paul says something similar in Colossians, Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If that sounds like a tall order to you, it should. No one in this room should hear that and go, all right, I'll start today. No, all of us should hear that. And and honestly, our first thought ought to be, I don't think I can do that. And the answer is, you're right. So then what do you do? You cry out to your good father who will give you everything that you need to live as he intended. He is just calling us to a life that is impossible for us apart from him. All right, so if we're called to live in a worthy manner, how do we do that? That's what Paul does next in verses 2 and 3. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There it is. That's how you and I walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. You could call this our godly gate. This is what our stride and our foot strike and our arm swing, that that is what it looks like when we are walking as Paul intended. And these things are the essential ingredients of Christian unity. One pastor said unity could be the overarching theme of all the book of Ephesians. He is all about taking these two groups, Jew and Gentile, who have been put into one body, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and them walking together in such a way that the world would never see the difference. They would just assume all these people go together. I mean, I know they're from different places and different backgrounds and different cultures, different languages, all of that. But they go together because they are so unified. So let's work through these essential ingredients, beginning with humility. This is most definitely the first not just in his list, but it's like, you got to get this if you're going to get the others. In fact, there's a beautiful progression here, but humility is lowliness, but it's not thinking too little of yourself or demeaning yourself. It's just thinking rightly about yourself. 
Not too much, not too little, just right. Seeing yourself the way God sees you. You're an image bearer full of value and worth and significance. But that is because you reflect his image. That's a right understanding of yourself and an understanding that you are sinful and flawed until you go to be with Christ. That is the truth about you. You're needy, dependent, fragile in so many ways. All of that rounds out our understanding of humility. Now, interesting, Paul says you got to have humility if you're going to walk worthy. And that was so offensive to his culture, the Greek culture. This was not a virtue. It wasn't as if all the Stoics of the day would sit around and say, you know, if, if you could just find humility in life, you'd really be something. No, this was nauseating. For you to be humble, that's like the lowest of the low. Who wants to be that? And yet Paul says, if you're going to walk worthy of this calling that you've been given, this blessed life that has been entrusted to you, you got to start with humility. You have to see yourself rightly. And I guess we could say that you can't really see yourself rightly if you don't first see God rightly. And then it progresses from there. Practically speaking, a couple of cross-references. Paul says in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. So there's the relational connection between your humility and how you treat others. Love Romans 12.10. Outdo one another in showing honor. If you're going to compete... Compete over how well you treat the people around you. Win that contest. Humility. Secondly, gentleness. Another word we could use here is meek. Think of power under control. You can think of, this is often referenced here with this passage, think of a of a huge stallion being under the control of the rider. Now, if it's just a physical contest between rider and horse, who wins? But yet that horse is brought under control. So the power of that horse is directed according to the will of the rider. Gentleness is all of the power that God has placed within us being under his control and directed in whatever he decides. This is relationally refraining from exerting force to get one's way. We are a very assertive culture. And so many of us celebrate the fact that we get things the way we want it. That is not gentleness. Gentleness is 
a gladness about letting somebody else have their way. Letting somebody else go first. Just accepting something the way it is. It doesn't have to be my way. That's gentleness. Humility, gentleness, and then probably one of our all-time favorites, patience. I, I had a great time this week. Um, Redeemer Classical Academy that's meeting here five days a week. Their school is using our facility plus this modular next door. They had their ribbon cutting this week. Here's a beautiful picture of it. And it was so awesome. And part of the little ceremony there is we got to hear the kids go through what they call their morning recitation. So every morning they begin their classes by uh, stating kind of who they are and who they want to be. Let me read this to you. It says, and by the way, they have all of this memorized. It was very impressive. We are the community of Redeemer Classical Academy. With Christ's help, we are striving to become virtuous learners, leaders, and agents of redemption for God's glory. We thank God for helping us daily to be, and then there's 21 (laughs) attributes. One of them is patience, and I loved it. Let me find it here. Waiting with a happy heart. Isn't that awesome? Now, it sounds great (laughs) until you have to actually do it, right? Like, we're all good to wait whenever there's nothing going on. We don't have to be anywhere. You know, it's all good. But when we got to get somewhere, when something's got to get done right now, patience, hard. But it is a virtue, isn't it? It means that I am willing, I am content with God's pace, even if it is far slower than my own, which sounds a little bit weird. God can go as fast as he wants to. He can also go as slow as he would like. James Spiegel defines patience as enduring discomfort without complaint. And discomfort can come in the form of relational, circumstantial, or internal difficulty. So you could just go, what do I do when something gets in the way? When something slows me down? What do you do? Do you fly off the rail? Do you have a short fuse? Do you take control? Paul is saying if you're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called, then you're willing to take a breath, to to pause for a moment and say, Lord, do do you have a different plan for me in this moment than I do? And if so, show me what it is and help me to align with it with a glad heart. That's patience, waiting for God to act when, where, and how God chooses. That's a great place to live. These three attributes lead us to the fourth. I'm just putting your notes, loving forbearance. 
long-suffering, this is really moving us more and more toward how we relate horizontally. We, we certainly don't have to bear with God in some way, right? We have to bear with one another and all of our imperfections and struggles and offenses and all of those things. So we suffer with the shortcomings of one another because God has suffered with ours. He is long-suffering. And he does that out of his love for us, which points us to a couple of places. 1 Corinthians 13, love defined. That will help us understand how God has treated us, and then that will also become the blueprint for how we treat others, even when they're perhaps unlovable, just like you. And then in Galatians 5, we're told that love is the fruit, one of the fruits of the Spirit. So this loving forbearance, it isn't something that I kind of muster up, that I kind of reach down deep. This is simply an overflow of the infinite love that I have been shown, which none of which I deserved. I love Pastor uh, Bob Utley's comment about love. He says, the strongest way we tell Jesus that we love him is we love those for whom he died. That's loving forbearance. And then he wraps up this little segment of our godly gate with peacekeeping. Now, when I say that, um, some of you may kind of drift toward the idea of sweeping things under the rug. Not dealing with things that need to be dealt with. And that's not at all what Paul is talking about here. He was never afraid to address things that needed to change or ways that people needed to grow. What peacekeeping is about is actively seeking to be a minister, as Paul says elsewhere, of reconciliation, of making things right that ought to be, sort of realigning relationships so that they reflect what God intends. That's a peacekeeper. That means that they don't avoid, they don't minimize, they don't sweep under the rug. They go at it, but they do it with humility and gentleness and patience and loving forbearance. You see how that works? William Barclay says it's people who produce, you might say cultivate, Right relationships in every sphere of life. That's a peacekeeper. And it's a way that we maintain unity with one another. Paul says there is an eager commitment. You might say zealous or even fierce commitment to preserving unity. Now, when you say preserve, that means that First of all, it already existed. You're not creating it. You're not making it. You're simply guarding it. You're protecting it. You're keeping it. What you have already 
been given. So we are called to maintain the unity that we have been given, not that we put together for ourselves. Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So let's just say this, it does depend on you. Now I realize you could come to a place where somebody is just absolutely impossible. But I do wonder how often is that the case? If we're humble, if we're gentle, if we are willing to bear with one another, I wonder how often unity could be preserved if we could relate that way to one another. Again, Bob Utley says, unity is a choice of the people of God because of the mandate of the Son of God. What did Jesus pray for his people in John 17 right before he goes to the cross? He prayed, just in case you don't know, he prayed that God's people, followers of Christ, would be one and then he provided the standard for that oneness the same way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. I don't think you can get any more oneness than that. And yet that's exactly what he prayed for you and for me, for us. That we would be so unified in the midst of all of our diversity that people would literally see the character of God in our community of faith. That's how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Paul mentions the unity of the Spirit, and then he goes on to say, if you need some vision or motivation for why you would live this way, here it comes. This is the why of the ones, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That is an objective reality that you have as a Christ follower. If you've entrusted your life to Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, that is yours. All of that oneness. This isn't the aim of the church, these things. And these aren't the goal to which we strive. Remember I talked about the gap. This is... This is what's on the side of the scale of God. This is what God's done, and we're trying to get our lives to align with this so that our lives reflect this oneness. These are the things which unify us, which make us one. So let's work through them quickly. One body. That is the body of Christ. In Ephesians 2.15, Paul called it the one new man. 
In Galatians, he talked about this. uh, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ, one body. And this body is made up of many members. This isn't uniformity. It's unity, and those are different. This means we can be different. In fact, that's a beautiful thing that we're different. Like if a whole body were an elbow, that'd be a little weird, wouldn't it? There'd be a lot of things you couldn't do. You need all the parts working together in unity so that the body can accomplish all that was intended. One spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells and empowers both individual believers and the church as a whole. And as I thought about the Holy Spirit, he's called our helper. But you know what? Sometimes I think that we treat the Holy Spirit as if he's like our errand boy. He's our leader. We're called to follow the leadership of the Spirit. He guides us into all truth. He shows us how to apply the Word in everyday life. He doesn't follow us. He walks with us, but He's pointing the way. We're called to follow Him, which means we need to learn to listen And I I recognize that can sound a little mystical. How do you hear the voice of the Spirit? Well, I would start with this. Because I know that the Spirit will never say anything that is in any way contradictory to what's in here. In fact, the Holy Spirit wants more than anything in the world for me to understand what's been written. So if I'm listening... What I'm doing is I have all kinds of thoughts, impressions, promptings, a thousand a day. But I'm always filtering them through what I know to be true. This doesn't change. This changes all the time. So I'm taking my thoughts, my impressions, my promptings, whatever I have in my head, and I put them to the test. And the Holy Spirit will always... Take this to the bank. Guide me into all truth. This will tell me whether I have heard from him or not. That's how that works. That's how you listen to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And if, I say if, when you need help, like we all do, you go to a fellow Christ follower, hopefully who knows this book, and you say, hey, I had this thought the other day. What do you think? And hopefully the first words out of their mouth are, well, you know, Scripture says, and there we go. Now we're filtering just stuff that we might come up with on our own through the Word of God. One hope. This is our confident expectation of salvation, redemption, and deliverance based upon the finished work of Christ. That is our one hope. Peter calls it a living hope in 1 Peter 1, 3. This isn't yours or my best 
version of a preferable future. This is a confidence that what God has said is ahead of us is exactly what will happen, and it will surpass anything you or I could have ever conceived. That's our one hope. One Lord, Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's it. There isn't another. He's not one among many. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, one Lord. That's out of Colossians 2. One faith. There's a lot of discussion about what faith represents. I I summed it up this way. Personal trust placed in the only and essential object of faith Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sin, for a life that glorifies God and a life that advances his kingdom. That's the faith. Once again, there's not a thousand of them. There's just one. And the object of that faith is the most important aspect. One baptism. Baptism, generally speaking, is an aspect of identification. So there's three that we can find biblically. Certainly the most familiar is water baptism, but what does that mean? It's a symbol, an outward symbol of an inward reality. I'm just saying when I get baptized that I have identified my life with Christ. I have entrusted myself to him. But also we find two other references to baptism. One is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's where the Spirit seals us and identifies us with Christ spiritually. So that's a reality. And then finally, we are at our conversion, baptized into the death of Christ, which means we are identified with his sacrificial and sufficient death on our behalf. All of those things simply mean we have been identified with the one Lord through the one faith. And that pulls us together and unifies us as one body. Lastly, Paul mentions one God and Father of all. The singular creator, sustainer, ruler, and redeemer of all who have entrusted their life to Christ through faith. He mentions that that one God and Father of all is over all, through all, and in all, which points to his purpose over all, his power through all, and his presence in all. And as I think about unity and where we all might struggle with one another. I mean, just look around. <laughs> you know, we, we get at odds. We tweak one another. That, that all happens. Here's a great reminder from this final phrase. God is just as interested in the spiritual health, maturity, and fruitfulness of every other Christian on earth 
as he is in yours. It's, it's amazing to me. God is so particular about how he loves us, isn't he? But just understand that he is just as particular about every other Christ follower as he is in you. Keep that in mind. When you feel superior or when you feel inferior, keep in mind the Lord is at work in all of us and not only as individual but as a body together. Walk worthy of this beautiful gift and calling that you and I have been given. Take a moment and ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to highlight one aspect, perhaps it's of that godly gate or maybe this gift of oneness that he's given. What aspect of that do you need to apply to your life today and every day going forward? Take just a moment to prayerfully consider that and then I'll close us in prayer. Spirit, thank you for speaking. Pray you'd give us hearts that are so sensitive to your voice. I thank you for your word that does clarify what is of you and what isn't. So Lord, whatever it is today that we've heard that we need to apply, would you help us? Would you show us what it is? And then help us to begin taking steps of application. And Lord, I know we'll have lots of opportunities in the, in the weeks ahead. Um, Lord, thank you for your grace. We walk so imperfectly. But Lord, I pray we would walk. Lord, help us to take steps. Next right steps. That would be good for us and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.